0: This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today, we enjoy another of our dispatches from the home garden when we visit a longtime gardener from New York State. Her garden holds hands with her similarly longtime study of Zen Buddhism in its meditation practice as well as in its arts. It's interesting heartening even to me that a large number of the comments I get from listeners and readers about Cultivating Place mention how much you all enjoy the dispatches from the home garden. Listening to gardeners tell the story of their own private gardens. I agree. I'm a big believer in the fun and mystery of each garden being different from all other gardens, of its being a signature of some kind for who we each are. Show me your garden, and I'll tell you what you are," the English poet Alfred Austin is famous for saying. The gardener we hear from today is a writer, a practitioner of Zen, of the Japanese tea ceremony, and the natural world. She joins us today via Skype from her home and garden in Tivoli, New York. I'll let her take it from here.
1: My name is Bettina Mueller. I'm in New York State in uh, the Hudson Valley about two hours north of New York City, and we're in Zone 5. Right now, it's um, early April, and it's very rainy and damp. We had snow uh, just the other day. Uh, We're all looking forward to spring, uh, but this is the climate here uh, in Zone 5. The crocuses are peeping out, and um, soon daffodils this garden I started in, well, when we moved here was about 18 years ago and about 2000, and I slowly have developed the garden. So it's, uh, an arborist friend of mine said the garden is kind of at its maturity. It's uh, apparently a garden reaches a peak and then hopefully we can keep it in this state for a long time. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm a web designer, um, I'm a gardener, I've written a couple of books, um, well three books all together. One of them was about tea ceremony, um, about the food in uh, the tea ceremony that's served in the tea. Uh, so I do uh, r- mostly writing and design. Mm-hmm. We'll definitely explore
0: your writing and the reference to the tea ceremony as we go along. But first, I'd like a little tour of your mature garden. Set the scene for us a little bit. If we were to walk up to your house for a garden tour, walk us around and tell us what we would be seeing.
1: First of all, my house is in a village, uh, a small village. I think there are about 1,100 people in the village. And we are on a road um, that is, uh, I have neighbors to the right and the left, mostly Victorian, old Victorian houses. And my house is built was built in 1860. And so imagine a uh, Queen Anne white Victorian house. And uh, we have a very small piece of property. It's a quarter of an acre. Um, and the house in the front yard, which is tiny, comprise about half of that. So when you're on the street and you're looking at the house, you see this uh, beautiful white house, and along the side of the house facing the south uh, was a driveway that went all the way down to the back door, kitchen door. And when we moved here, that was a blacktop driveway. And that's the only uh, space that gets sun during the day facing Mm -hmm. south. So we took that driveway out, the first thing we did before anything, and put in uh, about six raised beds. And those raised beds are filled with flowers in the summer. And they're flowers that I grow for the tea ceremony, and we'll talk more about that later, I hope. So if you were facing the house, you would come down the side of the um, uh, building, and stop and admire all the beautiful flowers. And uh, uh, there's a, a hedge along the side, a privet hedge which I've been tending uh, for years, and just recently pruned it. And you come down the side, and um, you come down a sort of small hill, and you see an arbor uh, waiting for you at the end of the hill, the small dip, and behind the arbor is a narrow path, cobble path, and that kind of beckons you to come further. And it's very mysterious. And in the summer, it's, you know, it's in the Hudson Valley, we're almost like a jungle here. Our big task is to keep everything from becoming overgrown, but it's extremely lush. And so behind that arbor you see the path and it's beckoning you on but you have no idea what's back there and so you come through and you step into the arbor and you look into what I call the roji or the tea garden and uh, then there's in the middle of that tea garden it's separated by a bamboo fence and beyond the bamboo fence is a small hut uh, that is my tea house where we have um, a tea ceremony, and also we sit meditation uh, during the week. First of all, I want
0: to I want to move back just a tiny bit in your description to this idea of the incredible lushness and greenery of New York State in the summer, specifically, with the tall canopy of deciduous hardwood and probably some softwood trees and grass and shrubbery and density and I can almost feel the the humidity of the summer there (laughs) (laughs) and you are able to grow things that people in the dry lands of the west and coast California coast uh you know kind of salivate over I think of um, and, and I am familiar with photographs of your garden, Bettina, and so I can picture the really happy hydrangea and viburnum and um, boxwood and native ferns, and it is this delicious lushness. The When you were first there 18 years ago and you started to put the garden in, uh Did you already have in mind at that point the idea of incorporating the way of tea and creating a space for the roji?
1: I did. Uh, The backyard, there was no planting on this property at all. And that, of course, is the best because you have a blank canvas to work with. And uh, so... What I first did, my tea teacher, who is in California, I spent a lot of time in San Francisco, many years living there. She uh, came from San Francisco to visit, and she said, The first thing she said was, you should build a, a tea house in the backyard, your tiny backyard. Mm-hmm. I think um, before we had the tea house, the backyard is the size of a croquet field. Mm-hmm. If you play croquet, it's really small. And the whole idea of a tea garden, as uh, as we've learned from tea masters since the 1600s, is that uh, you create a space that feels large, uh, even though it's very tiny. And I have been to Japan and seen gardens that were no bigger than, you know, ten feet square that incorporate the ideals of the roji, which we'll talk about, and somehow that that little 10-foot square garden can feel very large. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was not daunted by the size. And you mentioned the planting. What's really important, and I think uh, is really important for all of us gardeners, is to look at our environment, our natural landscape, and incorporate that into our gardens so that we don't feel as though we're creating a little... um, kind of, I call it a sort of Disneyland effect, you know, where you leave the road. For instance, in my garden, you leave the road, you leave the village, you come down the road, you see this Victorian house, and there's, you go into the back garden, which is a Japanese style or Japanese influence, and you have no sense that it's a Japanese garden or influenced by Japan. You have made a transition from the, an outer world to an inner world very seamlessly it really works and one of the reasons it works is that you we are using um, you know plants and trees that are in the in, in natural environment around us. Mm-hmm. For instance, I've planted some hemlock trees, which I just love. They're grown all around, but I have them in my my garden, and again, that extends the feeling. So this tiny space feels much larger uh, because we're working with plants that are, are around us all the time. Mm-hmm. Where did you Where did you grow up, and what were your earliest gardening influences, Bettina? Well, I grew up on a dairy farm not far from here. So I did grow up in the Hudson Valley and uh, we had 300 acres of land to play in and it was a wonderful, wonderful childhood. And I've always felt very comfortable in the earth and gardening and wherever I've been, I've created little uh, gardens. I lived in Hoboken, New Jersey for a while and I created a rooftop garden um, with salvaging bricks. I wanted to make brick pathways on this rooftop. And I didn't even consider the fact that all of these bricks that I was hauling up there were weighing down the (laughs) roof of the building. You know, and I grew up vines up the side of, um, you know, the brick buildings around me. So I've always had that uh, feeling of wanting to connect with nature. And uh, when I started studying tea, uh, tea ceremony, a large part of the study is gardening and architecture, as well as learning how to make tea and all the arts that are associated with it. So uh, it was just a natural for me, in in every way.
0: Yeah. And did you have gardening influences from your parents or grandparents? Or
1: no, not at all. Uh, my no. Uh, we, as I say, we had, we're on a dairy farm. Mm-hmm. So we were running around barefoot all the time and no gardening uh, to speak of. However, I understand that my grandfather, who I never met, who was a Lutheran minister in Canada, loved to grow dahlias. And he, and he created a greenhouse. So I think I've inherited his green thumb. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so I love to grow dahlias in the summer. You grew
0: up there and then you went on with some of life and you eventually began to study tea and the tea ceremony and the way of tea. Talk to us about that journey.
1: Well, that's been just a wonderful, wonderful study. Uh, I started uh, studying tea in New York City, where I was living at the time, and I had previously uh, started uh, studying Zen Buddhism. And tea, the tea ceremony is a Zen art and uh, my teacher, my Zen teacher, was very, very, very involved in tea. And he was delighted to find out that I, I was interested. And so I started studying at the Urasenke Foundation in New York City. And so then we moved to California. I continued my tea studies in California and, and then finally moved back east uh, to the Hudson Valley and California, I absolutely love. I've um, been out and lived in Green Gulch uh, in Marin, where mm-hmm. they have wonderful gardens. And I think Green Gulch might have been the sort of turnkey for me, because I weeded in their gardens. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, Green Gulch is a organic farm in Muir Beach. Uh, they grow vegetables, but they also have a large flower garden and grow flowers for the farmer farmers markets yeah and green
0: gulch is of course the working farm of the san francisco zen center and we interviewed their head gardener Kaiyum in november of 2016 which was a, a wonderful episode and description of the gardens and the culture and history there
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I spent a lot of time there, and I think that's really, as I say, where I really, really started to understand gardening in a deeper, in a deeper way, mm-hmm. as I was mm-hmm. continuing my tea study in San Francisco and my Zen practice. So when I moved back east. Um, it just seemed natural to continue all of that training that I'd had at Green Gulch, in the gardens, and also to uh, incorporate my tea study into the, into the tea house that I built and the garden. How old were you when—give <laughs> give me the range of
0: age in your adulthood that this was taking place.
1: I moved here when I was 50.
0: To, to the garden in, up in, New, in— In New York State. In your state. And when did you start studying tea in New York?
1: Oh, I think I was
0: in uh, my uh, late 20s. And so this has been a long-term study for you, spanning close to 30 years, or, or now more than that. Tell me what it means to study tea and why... And and how you were drawn to it as part of your study of Zen Buddhism. So, and describe what what does
1: to study tea mean. Okay, so this is a great question. Um, I could probably talk about this for hours. <laughs> I'll make it brief though. Uh, so, the formal practice of Zen is sitting meditation. You sit cross legged on a cushion silently and um, over time, you know, you work with a teacher and you practice and study Buddhism. And the question is, how do you take that practice into your daily life? Well, you become more mindful. uh, But you can also, uh, well, the Zen arts are ways in which to bring that practice besides ordinary life, ordinary activities, the Zen arts are a way of of bringing it into an artful manner and to share it with others. Mm -hmm. So when I say an artful manner, uh, there's calligraphy as a Zen art. Uh, So you share this calligraphy. And if you've seen any calligraphy by Zen masters, there's generally most people can't read the calligraphy, even Japanese people can't, necessarily read the calligraphy, but there's a spirit and an intention and a vigor uh, that is translated or communicated uh, to the person who's looking at the at the scrolls. And I think in the way of tea, essentially the tea ceremony, uh, we call it a tea ceremony, but it's not a ceremony. It's just a gathering of friends sharing a bowl of tea, and a sweet. And there is, in the tea gathering, a discussion of the scroll, a discussion of the utensils used in making tea, such as the bowl, the uh, tea scoop. They sometimes have poetic names. So your conversation in the tea room is very pointed and specific, and it can be very deep. And so this time together, they they say, uh, there's a phrase in tea, ichigo, ichie, uh, this one time, uh, never to be repeated, Mm -hmm. unprecedented, never to be repeated. Very much like this conversation that we're having. Uh, So it really is this occasion when people can communicate and interact in a very deep and meaningful way. Uh, So this has always intrigued me. Uh, And so I wanted to create a place where this could happen. It happens at Green Gulch, it happens at Urusenke in San Francisco and other tea rooms around the world. And I wanted to uh, just express myself in that way. I'm
0: Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're speaking with Bettina Mueller from her home and garden in rural New York state. Bettina is a writer, a gardener, and a student of Zen Buddhism. She is the author of A Taste of Heaven and Earth, and of The World in a Bowl of Tea, both from HarperCollins. She's also written A Tea Garden in Tivoli, a documentary of the making of her own home garden from her own imprint, Tea House Press. Her one-quarter acre home and garden has traditional perennial flower gardens out front of a Queen Anne-style house built in the late 1800s, as well as a contemplative tea garden built in something of an American style in the back garden. She mentions in her telling of the tea garden story the Zen saying, unprecedented never again, being at the heart of the idea that every moment is unique, having never happened previously and never to happen again, and thus to be treasured. This incentive for being as present as we can in the works and days of our lives is as we all know incredibly difficult to hold on to in the more mundane and repetitive of our tasks of washing dishes, the morning commute, whatever it might be. The zen arts of the tea ceremony, of calligraphy, and of ikebana flower arranging. These art forms work to help us practice being present in everyday activities. Bettina, an American student of Zen Buddhism and the way of tea, is sharing the story of her home garden with us today. We'll be back to hear more after a break. Stay with us. Okay, so I didn't really plan it that last week I riffed a little on the importance of ceremony after listening again to the journey of artist Melody Overstreet. And I wondered about, and asked you all about, how to incorporate more ceremony into our lives. And then, bam, we hear the story of Bettina Mueller, whose whole garden is built on ceremony. While most sources define ceremony as being very formal, polite and defined an action or series of actions of cultural, political, or religious importance, I'm thinking there's more to it than that, at least for me. Just like there's always more to a garden than mere combining of plants. Bettina mentioned the art of calligraphy as one which transmits vigor. And I immediately thought, that is just like the daily ceremony of greeting and engaging with plants and the garden and the morning or evening light there. So I'm going to ask again about ceremony. How do you incorporate it into your days, your weeks? Is it weekly church service? Is it mealtime prayers? Is it bedtime gratitude journaling? Is it the way you cook your meals or sweep your floors or rake your garden paths? Could it be some bit of all of these? I really hope you'll share your thoughts. Send me a note through the contact form at cultivatingplace.com or leave a comment on this week's episode notes post on Instagram or Facebook. And definitely check out this week's episode notes on the website. The photos of Bettina's garden are really lovely and inspiring. Now back to this week's dispatches from the home garden with Bettina Mueller of Tivoli, New York. This is Cultivating Place conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back to continue this Dispatches from the Home Garden with Bettina Mueller of Tivoli, New York. Welcome back.
1: Creating gardens, uh, in the tea gardens, and creating a tea hut is something that tea masters, not that I'm a tea master, but tea practitioners have done since the 16th century. There was a great uh, gathering at Kitano in Japan, I think in the 1600s, where uh, people came and they built their tea huts overnight, and they had this great—you know—maybe 50 tea huts were built, and they had this great kind of fair, tea fair, mm. um, and people were making tea. And so it's—it's a—and uh, what's also really fascinating about it is that it's not—it's uh, it, the language of tea. It's Japanese in origin, but it can be applicable, applied anywhere. So my tea house, for instance, doesn't look like a Japanese tea house. It looks like a little barn in the back of my property, and it matches the design of many of the barns in the neighborhood. Mm. So, again, this whole idea that you're, uh, it, you're creating a space, you're creating a garden, uh, that reflects your environment, and that that spirit that you bring to it is something that you don't broadcast, uh, You it, it's subtly revealed,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: I think that that's one of the beauties of tea and also of Zen, that things are revealed in this mysterious fashion. mm mm-hmm. Back
0: to the the garden tour, the, the visualization of what we would see there. You, We walk to the arbor, beyond the arbor is the cobblestone path leading to the bamboo fence. Beyond that is the tea hut itself. Talk about the, the plant selection you have here and the layout of the formal tea garden elements, if there are those, that... Make this place the unfolding,
1: mysterious, and
0: sacred space that it is?
1: Well, that's a great question. And uh, people are fascinated by this. It's, you know, there are no rules really set out to how to create a tea garden. Uh, there is nothing written down about how to do it. There are suggestions that have been passed down through centuries. So this garden is not something I just made up out of thin air. And there are just a few elements that I talk about in my book um, that make this garden work. And so we're talking about a roji now, a tea garden. And anyone can make a tea garden, wherever they are. But there are a couple of elements that are really necessary. And one of them... If you imagine, um, you know, this space and you divide it in half, let's say, you'll have an outer garden and an inner garden, and they're separated by that bamboo fence. So the outer garden is where that cobble path is, and that cobble path is always straight. And the planting in that outer room, let's say garden room, mm-hmm. is very spare, and um, it's formal it's quiet so what happens is you leave your world you come through the village of tivoli you come down past all the flowers and the victorian house you come through the arbor and all of a sudden everything is very quiet and there are no flowering trees or shrubs in That's that another. space in the in the in, in the outer garden in both mm, okay a tea garden has no flowering uh, shrubs, no, nothing to distract the eye.
0: Mm, okay.
1: And while I say there are no rules, these aren't rules, but these are kind of uh, guidelines, mm-hmm. let's say. And not, not too many, but just enough. What happens when you go to a flower garden, for instance, and you stroll around, you know, some wonderful... Um, I mean, imagine going to the Chelsea Garden Show or, or you know, going to your neighbor's garden to see what's, you know, just come into bloom. You know, you're bending down and you're smelling the flowers and you're oohing and aying if you're like me. Um, but the tea garden has none of that. It's very quiet. Um, in Japan... Be- they have a different uh, climate altogether, and they use a lot of um, broadleaf evergreens. Uh, here in New York State, we don't have so many of those. Um, in California, where you are, for instance, there are camellias, which I would love to grow, but you wouldn't have any camellias in your tea garden because they, they bloom. Yeah. And so in my outer roji, with that long cobble stone Path. There are, I have some boxwood that I've uh, clipped into rounds, and that enhances the kind of formal feel of that room. So, what happens when you're with two or three friends? You're chatting, you come down the side of the house, you step into the arbor, and all of a sudden you're on a path that's only three feet wide, so you can no longer be walking side by side, you have to be single file, and all of a sudden conversation just lessens entirely. And also you're focused because you're, the path is directing you to the bamboo fence in the center with the gate, and the gate is partially opened as a welcoming sign. And so you go up to the gate, you enter, and the path changes at that time. And instead of a cobble straight path, it's scattered stepping stones. And they never go in a straight line. They're always, um, you know, turning this way or that way. And you don't really see the tea house. Again, you're following the path. You're not really sure where you're going. And once you cross into this garden room, which is the inner roji, the planting gets much more what I call wild, so it's as though you have embarked on a path up a mountain to a far away uh, to a retreat place. And the farther away you get, the more um, natural it gets or more wild. And in this inner garden, I've planted a lot of ferns and grasses. And I have um, some hemlock back there. And really, it just feels as though you're getting lost deeper and deeper in the woods. And it gets quieter and quieter. And the, the stone paths really... Um, modulate how fast you're going so it, it was one thing to walk on the cobble path which was straight now you kind of have to look down you're on the stepping stones and you have to look down where is the next stone and so you're focused more inwardly and you're slowing down and the whole point of the of the roji and it really works I've you know I've had more people tell me their experiences and is that you feel that you leave the dust of the world behind. Mm. And finally, when you get into the tea house, you kind of shed a lot of of your daily experience. A great example of this, if, if we have time, I'll just be very brief, but um, I invited uh, a friend and his colleague who work in the village at a real estate office to come and have tea, And the guy had no idea what a tea ceremony was. He thought he was maybe coming for an afternoon of English tea with two women friends. And um, apparently, just before they arrived, he was very stressed out in his office and he said to my other friend, I can't go. I just simply don't have time to go. This is, I'll have to put it off. And she said, you don't understand. You, you have to go. This is not some. This is not a casual affair. Um, we have to go. So, I could. I was in the tea house and I could see them coming down the road and coming down the path toward the um, the tea house. And I had no idea of you know what was going on in his life or or anything. And they came in to the tea tea room and we had a wonderful time. He was a, a wonderful guest. It was very inquisitive. He asked a lot of questions. Uh, and then uh, when they left, the host generally doesn't leave the garden with with um, their, the guests. So I stayed in the tea house, and I watched them leave. And as they left, they were bending down and looking at things, and, th- and they just seemed to be very... Um, you know, engaged mm. and were taking their time and apparently when they got out onto the road he turned to my friend and said, oh my this is just, I just feel completely different, I just mm. feel so calm and reconnected mm. and off they went back to their their work and I think that was a very successful event I yeah. had no idea how agitated he was when he when he arrived but and about how long does the tea ceremony take, or does... It, yeah the It's tea... about an hour.
0: Okay. It and takes about an
1: hour. Is it all formalized? Well, it's, that's a very good question because uh, this is such an interesting question. It's come up about so many different art forms. Once you learn a form, then you can leave it behind or then you can become creative. You can't become creative unless you have a foundation for it. So, again, in the garden, um, you know, you have to know which plants are going to grow where, or you have to have an idea of some kind of um, guideline to where you want things to go, how you want the paths to go. But once you have that understanding of what a tea garden is or your your own garden then you can go and let loose do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. you can experiment you can you know try new and different things and i would say that's one of the beauties of tea even though it's formulated and was and we're practicing tea in the same way uh, that they did in the sixth 17th century if you You can go to tea houses all over the world and you'll find elements of the personality of the maker. Uh, It's not rigid, formulated, and what's wonderful about it is that every tea house is different. It incorporates the environment uh, in which you are. I'm Jennifer
0: Jewell and this is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with gardener and writer Bettina Mueller. Her quarter-acre home garden, in which she has lived and grown for 18 years in Tivoli, New York, reflects the environment around it with the incorporation of trees and shrubs and flowers of her Zone 5 region, interwoven with and into a garden that also reflects her own life history and her study of Zen Buddhism and the Zen art of tea. Bettina describes the carefully designed space leading to the teahouse nestled into her back garden with an outer entry garden through which you walk to get to an inner garden, which has a small, slightly open gate as a way of both a delineated threshold and a sign of welcome. In neither the inner nor the outer garden are flowering plants used. She's done this in order to create and maintain a sense of visual quiet. We'll be back after a break to hear more about Bettina's garden journey. Stay with us. Hey, it's me, Jennifer. Okay, I'm gonna keep going with the exploration of ceremony. I hope that works for you. Maybe all of our work in the garden is ceremony. Here's how this came up for me. I pictured Bettina as she described her favorite work time in the garden. She's on her hands and knees, very carefully tending to and weeding the cobblestone path leading through the roji's outer garden to its inner garden. She's enjoying her evening glass of wine, and she says her face is right down at ground level, paying attention to the details. Picture that. She is, as we all are, a supplicant to the beauty and mystery of this life we live in relationship to the garden. She is hedging her privet just so. She is rounding her boxwood. She is inhaling the healing scent of her native hemlocks and ferns and grasses. She's hand-tying the black twine just so, with intention, into a repeated pattern over and over to create the stability and line of her bamboo fence. She is kneeling and kissing the ground of this garden. She is literally and symbolically caring for her outer garden in order to take the best path to and care of her inner garden. As gardeners, aren't we all doing this? That is perfect ceremony built on reverence, celebration, and gratitude in my mind. If you liked this episode, I hope you share it with others. It's my greatest hope that with this program, we all, with our everyday, even very small scale gardens, and our big hearted nature love, make a difference in this world. And we pay the gifts of our gardens forward. Okay, now back to Bettina. This is Cultivating Place conversations on natural history, and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with New York state-based home gardener and writer Bettina Mueller. Over 18 years, she's caringly created and cultivated a contemplative roji, or tea garden, in which to hold the traditional Japanese tea ceremony, a Zen art helping practitioners to maintain presence in their everyday lives and activities. The green and simplified plantings, the materials and the design and lines of the walkways, the handcrafted fence, these are all intended to help visitors slow down, to look at where they are going, and to move inward from the demands of the outside world to, as Bettina says, leave the dust of the ordinary world behind as they enter the garden. Welcome back. Now. Tell me about your, outside of being a host and having people to tea and sharing this experience outside of your own gardening practice, how do you use the garden? And what is your, maybe your practical as well as your contemplative garden practice, Bettina?
1: Well, I love gardening, just love it. and. You know, it's such a, such a good excuse to get outside and get in the dirt and get in the sunlight, and, and uh, it's compelling. And it's compelling because the garden doesn't wait. So, for instance, this March is pruning season, and I had to prune um, a lot of my shrubs and also this quite large privet hedge that I have. I do it all myself. And you can't wait. There's a window of opportunity, um, a few weeks in March, and that's when you have to do it. And for me, uh, that is a great, great practice uh, to see what's happening and to know that now this is this is the time when I have to do this. Or of course, when the weeds are sprouting and you you know you have to go out and do the weeding. Um, so it's a it's a wonderful. It's a wonderful gift, really, uh, to be able to have a garden. And it's so interesting when I've uh, been around, I've gone to garden fairs and garden shows and given talks many places. And people will come up to me and they'll say, Oh, your garden is so beautiful. And oh, and I will always ask, Well, do you have a garden? And they'll sort of hang their head and shake their head, no, not really. And I say, really, not really? And they say, well, yes, I have this little garden, but it's it's really not much. You know, it's it's funny that um, people don't celebrate it a little bit more. They're intimidated mm-hmm. um, by it. Mm-hmm. And there's there should be no intimidation. Just get out there and, and weed and put in your favorite plant and enjoy it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And do you spend time in the tea garden, in a con- in, in the roji, whether the outer garden or the inner garden, on your own when you are not hosting other people for tea? And what does that look like?
1: Well, I have a waiting bench, what we call a waiting bench, uh, which is a Victorian-styled uh, bench uh, that matches the era of my house. And it's back there, and I love the afternoon or the early evening in the summer, and I go out there and just sit and sometimes read, make notes in my journal. Uh, I use it quite a bit. And of course, it's the most fun to share. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have, as I say, uh, during the week there's meditation, and, you know, people come through, they get familiar with the garden, and... uh, I also have a friend who uses my tea house, and he's a tea person, and he brings people over. And so the garden is quite well used. And as for me, I, the contemplation, honestly, is in the working. Mm-hmm. So that cobble path that, you know, is got moss in the cracks – Needs weeding. So on a summer evening, you know, I might have a glass of wine and get out there on my hands and knees with my nose right down onto the cobbles, and I'll be picking out the weeds one by one. And I love that. <laughs> yes. I really love that. and And it shows there's a lot in the garden that that um, is there by intention. For instance, that bamboo fence, i'm we built that, I think, in two thousand and five, and the bamboo, so how long is that, 2015? That's almost 13 years. The bamboo has has stayed okay, and it now needs to be replaced. So right now, um, I've got 100 bamboo, um, bamboo poles, and I'm going to be cutting them myself with a hacksaw, I think, and then rebuilding that bamboo fence, mm-hmm. and the beauty of it is that the bamboo poles are tied together with black twine, uh, and... You know, this is something I do, so my energy is there, my intention is there, but it's so subtle that people don't, like, remark necessarily on it, but they feel it. Mm-hmm. I'm convinced that people feel uh, the gardener's intention, whether they know it or not. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You've been in this garden with the,
0: the development, with the maturing of it for 18 years, and I'm imagining that several life thresholds may have taken place here for you. Do you have sort of (laughs) strong moments of memory that are held in this garden, Bettina? Life thresholds. What would be a life threshold? Well, when I think of my garden, I think of my children having moments of growing up, of getting driver's license, of falling in love, of a pet dying, of someone being married, of a baby being born, of me turning 50, of <laughs> publication <laughs> yeah. of a book, of things that were meaningful to us that when we walk through the garden, these time
1: memories are are all there with us. You know, I wouldn't say that for this roji uh, i would say that more for my flower gardens mm-hmm. um in the front of the house uh, those i'm changing and they change uh the roji is more of an experience of being present so i can't say that i have those kind of feelings about it because it's always this kind of new experience going through there mm-hmm. um but certainly in the front of the garden, you know, we've done a lot of renovation on the house. Uh, you know, my mother used to visit, and she's no longer here. You know, she passed away. Um, you know, those kinds of life moments are certainly evident in the front of the garden uh, with the flower flowers. And I'm changing those flowers around a lot. Uh, but the Roji, not so much. It's more of a place of, of being present and kind of only, almost doing away with time.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as you look at the Roji over time and uh, over space, as you look back and look forward, you know, what, what would you say have been the greatest challenges there? If there are any, if there have been any. Oh,
1: yes, there were a lot of challenges. Deer are (laughs) a big challenge because we're in the east here. Um, We have a lot of deer in the village of Tivoli. So uh, the deer used to come in from the back field. There's an empty field behind my garden, and they would come right down the roji, eating the hemlocks along the way. So I had to finally put in a deer fence and uh, that solved that problem so uh, is this the sort of thing that you're talking about yeah definitely so one of my great projects now is moss I'm i am become uh, obsessed with moss and we do have moss growing here but not in little patches here and there so on the side of the tea house Uh, if you can imagine, um, there's a small entry door uh, that's about three feet square. And this is where the guests come into the tea room. It's a sliding little door and you have to crouch down and scoot into the tea room. And uh, this is pretty traditional in all tea houses. And I have, I'm trying to create this moss garden all around in that, that side area, which is kind of uh, shady and dusky, and it's it's actually happening little by little. The garden is the best place to practice patience. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm finding, so this is maybe my third year of trying to encourage moss in that area, and mm, every spring I'm I'm not sure, but then you know it it sort of takes over, and this concept of patience or building a garden for the future um, you know I really I'm not moving things around back there that's pretty much set uh, when I went to Japan the last time I went to the famous moss temple called Saihōji, and many of your listeners are probably familiar with it have been there or at least know about it but it's the famous moss garden in Japan Uh, It's absolutely spectacular. Everything is covered in moss. It's just... And the moss has some kind of quality to it that makes everything very peaceful and calm and almost spiritual in a way. When the designer of that garden built that garden, he had no idea that moss would take it over (laughs) at all. And that was four or 500 years ago and now it's a, it's a national treasure so it's so interesting so patience i'm encouraging the moss we'll see in 50 years maybe the moss will be all over that back garden
0: we don't and, know and are you collecting native mosses of your area how are you encouraging your moss
1: I have some moss in the garden itself, like behind a mm-hmm. silver maple tree, there's patches of it. And so I'm forking it up and then bringing it over there. Mm-hmm. I did try um, buying some moss in, in uh, big, uh, you know, rounds, mm-hmm. like, like turf, mm-hmm. and that didn't work. Mm. So um, I'm just using the, the mosses that I see mm-hmm. uh, around, and moss is just fantastic, yeah. very exciting now I think it has to be weeded, by the way. Yes. <laughs>
0: you you have touched on this in our conversation, Bettina, and you certainly touch on it to some extent in your book, uh, A Tea Garden in Tivoli, American Garden Design, inspired by the Japanese way of tea. I'd like you to see if there are additional things you'd like to add to what your greatest joys in the garden are and what your hopes are from sharing your garden. When you're sitting on your waiting bench and it's the late afternoon in the summer and or your experience of watching those two people leave the garden refreshed which surprised them or What led you to wanting to write a book about the garden and this study you have taken? What is at the heart of all of those emotions for you?
1: I think the heart of it is uh, the practice, the Zen practice. Uh, The the practice, and it's a life practice of learning to be more and more mindful, uh, more and more gentle. you know, reaching out uh, to people sharing and expressing myself uh, from a very deep place. You know i I am not so much uh, a dinner party kind of person, but uh, kind of uh, this sharing deeply moment to moment with other people. Uh, in the garden, in the tea house, uh, sharing, uh, the Zen practice fundamentally, uh, and all its creativity, it's all various different forms is really what's my, what my motivation is. Um, you know, making things beautiful, Mm -hmm. expressing myself, uh. In not an egotistical kind of way, like oh, you know, look at this great garden that I've designed, but um, come and you know share this experience. Um, it's beautiful, and it's so simple. I think uh, you know this notion today that more we have to have more and more and more uh, is is displacing us, and we're lost. Uh, so I think to be able to uh, encourage myself and encourage you know, people I know and friends that I make to uh, come and experience something that is simple, that's easily available, that doesn't need anything extra, uh, that we are just as we are perfect, uh, including the garden, even uh, you know, and watching the garden in all its, uh, stages of you know springtime blooming, and then you know in the fall where everything is dying. And watching that cycle, and uh, accepting it and uh, embracing it, I think that's uh, that that's the biggest joy for me. Thank you very much
0: for being a guest on the program today. It's been wonderful to hear about your garden and your your journey in this.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Jennifer.
0: It's really a pleasure. Bettina Mueller is a home gardener, a student of Zen Buddhism and the Zen art of tea. She is also the author of three books, A Taste of Heaven and Earth, The World in a Bowl of Tea, both of these from HarperCollins, and of A Tea Garden in Tivoli from Tea House Press, a documentary of the building of her tea garden. At various times, Bettina has been a cook on a working tugboat, a news photographer, owner and chef of a pioneering vegetarian restaurant, an executive of a cutting edge internet company, and a writer and gardener. She is interested in food and media, has been a lifelong student of Zen, the Japanese tea ceremony, and the natural world. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener supported co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by California Public Broadcasting and you. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. For more information or to subscribe to the podcast, as well as to read more about Bettina's garden and see lots of great photos of the garden, head over to cultivatingplace.com. Also, take a minute to send in a rating and review of the program over at Cultivating Place on iTunes or wherever you catch your podcasts. These reviews really help to support the program. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.